morning, church family. If you've brought your Bibles, and I hope you have, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians today, the second half of chapter 5. As you're turning there, let me just say it's a joy to be with you this morning. We love you, Greenbelt, and we are thankful for your testimony of grace as you worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and live for his glory. Before we go to 2 Corinthians, let's, let's turn to God once more in prayer and ask for him to bless this time in his word. Father God, we praise you for this word, the word given to us, that we might see you and know you, that we might know how to live and how to obey you. Father, we, we praise you for the word incarnate, Jesus Christ, who became flesh and died in our place, that we can have this privilege to relate to you, to come to you, to worship you, Father. We praise you for that. Jesus, we pray that you would be with us right now in this service. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be present in this room and would be present in the hearts of your believers right now to to speak to our hearts, to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment, to, to open the words of this text to our eyes and open our eyes to the word and and to show us how we ought to live. Jesus, we want to be made into your image. We want to live like you, Jesus Christ, and we pray that we would do that better today because of how your word speaks to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, last time I visited Greenbelt, I shared with you the story of David and Fatma, a Muslim couple that my wife Jamie and I befriended when we first moved to the Middle East. Um, I think I shared David's extraordinary story of his conversion to Christ and how God brought him out of Islam through dreams and, and visions, through truly amazing circumstances. But what I didn't emphasize so much last time was the rather ordinary story of visits and conversations and months of intentional friendship that Jamie and I had with this couple before David miraculously came to Christ in the Middle East. We met this couple at the English Center that Jamie and I were working at, or Jamie was teaching at in the Middle East, and I remember taking them out to dinner at a a new fish restaurant that opened up in town. Later, Despite us barely speaking Arabic at the time, we went to their son's school play with them and and tried to understand what little bit we could from the play. And then by Christmas time, we gave David a Bible one evening and, and simply explained to him that this book was a treasure to us and we wanted him to have that treasure and to be able to read it for himself. Months later, I'll never forget inviting them over for an American meal in our house there in the Middle East. You should have seen their faces as they dug into the the meatloaf and the mashed potatoes. (laughs) They had a similar look on their faces as I did when I ate their roasted quail. Um, But altogether, before David came to faith, we had lots of visits with him. Lots of rather ordinary visits but with one key distinction. We were being very intentional about using our conversations to bring up David's need for Jesus Christ. 
In fact, if you followed Jamie and I around our ordinary lives in the Middle East, you might find that even though we have some amazing stories, God is at work there, a lot of days are rather ordinary. We spend a lot of time doing normal tasks, like a trip to a market or dinner at our house or going out for coffee or or going to a child's birthday party and leveraging these normal tasks for intentional conversations about Jesus Christ. Well, today's passage relates to these intentional conversations. Just like in David's story, while in the end Christ absolutely changes everything, the means that God uses sometimes to bring about that change can be rather ordinary. So look at chapter 5 with me in 2 Corinthians. For for the sake of time today, we're going to begin in verse 16, but it's important to briefly note that the section of Paul's argument here actually begins in verse 11. Uh, You notice there that Paul says that, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Paul has been explaining and expanding on his task of persuading others of the person of Christ. But now as we move to verse 16, where we're going to look today, uh, we're going to see three things this morning. We're going to see the the change that Christ brings, the means by which the world will hear that change, and the fuel which supplies the delivery. So, So first, what is the change that Christ brings? Look at the text. First, we see a change in perspective. Verse 16 says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So a a Christian does not see people from a worldly point of view. This verse is teaching us that, that just like Christ was no longer viewed as just a man according to the flesh anymore, After he resurrected, he was seen as a king, the divine king that he is. Just as we see him no more the same way, a Christian no longer looks at others according to their earthly or worldly status. There there are many ways that we can view people, right? There's many ways that we can categorize people or stereotype them. But if we look with Christ's eyes, we see an eternal view of their relationship with God as the first and foremost priority. This is especially true, this is true of us as Christians. We Christians view others according to their standing with Christ. You could say that we we have gospel lenses, right, That, that, that we put on. And when we are in Christ, it colors the way that we see the people around us. So we no longer view them as just through fleshly eyes, according to a worldly status. The famous evangelist D.L. Moody often was known for saying that when he met someone, he would envision an S or an L hovering above their head, representing saved or lost, in Christ or out of Christ. Christian, if you're here today... The way that you should view others is no longer according to a fleshly perspective, as, as Paul says in this verse. Do you wear gospel lenses in your life, or have you blindfolded yourself with a worldly perspective? Another change that we see in this text comes in verse 17. We see a change of our very person. 
Notice there it says, therefore, in light of this, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So becoming a Christian, being in Christ, as this verse says, changes everything. It makes you a completely new creation. If you are here today, by the way, and you maybe aren't yet a believer, and you're looking in on the Christian life and wondering what's going on here, let me say to you that coming to Christ is is no mere add-on to your life, as you might add on a new hobby or, or get a new friend. No, coming to Christ changes everything about your life. You literally become a new creation. And so, as the verse says, old things have passed away. Old things like the the habits of the flesh, the sinful practices, our our previous standing before God has, has passed away. Behold, new things have come. Things like a, a new and right standing with God, as we're going to see in a moment. But also a new lifestyle, a new desire to please Christ, a new desire to treasure Christ, a new self-identification. If you are in Christ, everything has changed. But moving on in verse 13, we see the main emphasis of this passage, which is the, the change that Christ brings is a relational change. Look at verse 18. We read, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And then in verse 19, again, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. God, through Christ, is bringing us relational change. We can know God. He is reconciling us to himself. This idea is the idea of healing a broken relationship. It's it's the idea of fixing a discrepancy between two different offending parties that are at odds. There is a cosmic conflict between all sinners and God. And this is in need of reconciliation. The word that the text uses here is trespasses, or another word for sins or wrong actions. Our trespasses have offended God and broken our right relationship with him. So ultimately, when we sin against God, we are actually committing divine treason against the holy, sovereign creator of the universe. You know, right now on the global stage, ISIS in the Middle East has captured the world's attention. They've done horrific actions, and uh, they're being watched and and despised by the world. And in fact, so much so that no one is debating whether they should be taken out, but most are just discussing how it should be done. Should U.S. boots be on the ground or how much of a coalition should be brought together? How quickly should this evil force in the Middle East be taken out? I want you to imagine with me, what if ISIS captured your son or your daughter? Or what if they captured your spouse or your father or your mother, and they had them? And then what if the worst happened? What if they killed them? And then imagine with me 
even further. Imagine that back here in the States, while that's happening, some special task force forms in Congress and then works its way up to the president, who then goes over and works with the European Union and the African Union and builds a coalition to just offer peace to ISIS. In the midst of their offense against the world and against you personally, they extend a hand of reconciliation to ISIS and says, you know what? If you just stop, we'll forgive you. In fact, we'll give you land to live in in the Middle East. We'll, in fact, we'll invite some of you to come live here in Greenbelt, give you some citizenship here to the United States. Now, I assure you, most of us here would be offended by such an idea. It offends our senses. The idea of mere free reconciliation with such an evil group offends us. Have you seen the evil that they've done? Have you not seen who they really are? But listen carefully. Such reconciliation with a group like ISIS is far less shocking than what the truth of this verse says. Verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. You want to know what's unimaginable? That is unimaginable. That is unfathomable. That is unbelievable. And that actually happened, church. God himself, the almighty, the perfect, the holy, the spotless, the creator of the universe, created us and watched us rebel against him. And then, in the face of this cosmic treason, God initiated reconciliation with us. That is unfathomable. How did he do this? The text tells us in verse 21, we read there that for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The great reformer Martin Luther called this the great exchange. God in Christ takes our sin. And we, by faith, take the righteousness of Christ. God gives us his righteousness through Christ. Through the work of Christ on the cross, his substitution gives us the gift of righteousness. We bring nothing to God except for our sinfulness. And Christ takes his robe of righteousness and covers us in it. It wasn't free. Christ had to pay. And when he went to the cross and and died on that cross and rose again by faith now, we can have reconciliation with God. This is the change that Christ brings. This is the change that the world needs, right? Right? But this this passage doesn't merely show us the change that Christ brings, but it shows us the means of the delivery. Look with me at verses 18 and 19 again. We read there that all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message 
of reconciliation. So we who are reconciled now become reconcilers. We who were given peace with God now extend peace with God to others. To continue my previous illustration, imagine Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is the head of ISIS comes to the States, is given citizenship, extended peace, and then is hired as Secretary of State here for our country. It's, it's unimaginable, right? That's crazy. But that, again, is what happened. Christ reconciled us to God and then said, now you go out and reconcile the world to me. You have this ministry of reconciliation. Notice the progression that we see in the text. The flow is from God to Christ to us. We read, all these things are from God. So God is the great reconciler with the initiative to save mankind, right? And then we read, who reconciled us through Christ. Christ is working in obedience to the Father. It's in Christ that we're reconciled and through Christ that God is bringing this peace. And then we are given this message of reconciliation. So from God to Christ and then to us. This is much the same progression as we find in John 20, right? When we read that Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, so I now am sending you. Have you caught the significance of that? That means that when you go out this week and you tell your neighbor, about Jesus Christ and the reconciliation that he has brought to you, you are taking part in the plan of God, begun by God the Father, carried out through the person of Jesus Christ, and handed, entrusted to you. And conversely, when this week you step back from that ministry and you choose to be quiet about your faith, You are, in a very real way, stopping the progression of of God working through Christ to reach the world. You are stopping your role as a minister of reconciliation. So no wonder we see here that Paul uses this word entrust, to be entrusted with this message in verse 19. To entrust is to put something into someone's care and protection it's, it's to put under their responsibility. You, church, have a responsibility, and that responsibility is to be a minister of reconciliation. What does this mean to be a minister of reconciliation? Verse 20 tells us. We read this in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you. On behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So what does it mean to be a minister of reconciliation? You serve as an ambassador. Picture yourself as a diplomat of a king sent to a foreign country. This diplomat is sent with a message to perhaps appeal to the foreign country to accept a king's invitation. This is you when you go out into the world. As though, the verse says, as though God were making an appeal through you, through your lips. An ambassador is a a carrier, is is a spokesperson of a message, the message of reconciliation. So 
what about you? Do you view yourself as a spokesperson for God? When you talk with others, when you talk with your coworkers this week on your lunch break, do you see yourself as a spokesperson for the gospel? When you meet and befriend your neighbors on the street or, or pass them by the mailbox, do you view yourself as a spokesperson for the gospel? When you have a free evening next week and you get to choose how you're going to spend that free evening, and you think perhaps you could engage with someone in your sphere of influence, some neighbor you could have over for dinner, someone here that you saw that visited this church to find out more about Christ, do you view yourself as a spokesperson for the gospel? You see, if you are here today and you're a Christian, you represent Christ as his ambassador. You are part of God's plan to extend reconciliation. And this changes how you view your everyday life and your everyday conversations. Now, don't let yourself get caught with the feeling of this is actually a job that's better reserved for professional Christians. Jeff, you go ahead and you go do that. That's great. And Pastor Mike, he's, he's good at talking to guests. I think he would probably be a better minister of reconciliation than me. Don't let yourself get caught in that. Look at the ver- verse 18. If the first half of verse 18 is true of you, that is, God reconciled you to himself, you are made right with God, then the second half is also true with you, true of you. He's entrusted you with this ministry of reconciliation. By being reconciled, you immediately become a minister of reconciliation. So notice with me how the chapter describes how this speech looks like as we tell others about Christ. Here in verse 20, and later in verse 1 of chapter 6, Paul uses this word to appeal. This, this word is packed as, as an earnest invitation. It's, it's an appeal to others. We are offering God's earnest invitation. But then in the second half of verse 20, we also see Paul saying, we implore you. Or as the NASB says, we beg you, we, we, we plead with you. This is emphasizing the role of us of pleading with others, be reconciled to God. And earlier, where we started, we saw that Paul began this section in verse 11 with the words, we persuade others. This word is, is even different still. This is the idea of, of winning someone over of convincing someone of the truth of Christ. So here we are, earnestly inviting. We are winning over or convincing. We are even begging others, be reconciled to God. So if this is true, if we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, if that is our role, let me just say briefly what this is not. First of all, church, this cannot merely be just inviting someone to church to the building, right? Now, now, don't get me wrong. I think you should invite more people to come on Sunday mornings. But if, if your role as a minister is to implore others to be reconciled to God, then just getting them into a building so that someone else can do that is not fulfilling this task. And, and rightly so, that the text tells us this, that we ought to speak this earnest invitation ourselves. You know, in, in America today, there is a growing percentage of the population, researchers tell us, 
that will never come into the doors of her church building, even if invited. In the country I live in, if a non-believer even wants to go to church and he enters a church building like this, it could very easily cost him his life and would definitely cost him persecution. He most likely would lose his job and be ostracized from his community. And so, rightly so, the text tells us that we are imploring others. We are using our mouths to speak ourselves to others about what Christ has done for us. Are you doing this? Secondly, notice what it's not. It's not merely informing others about Jesus or about the Bible, though information is great to give out too. But here, the text points to the fact that we are inviting, that we are convincing, that we are pleading with the people around us, see Christ and be reconciled to him. I have a good friend who likes to say, information without invitation is only education. Church, may I submit to you that we are not going out into Greenbelt and into the world around us merely to educate others about what those Christians believe. No, as a Christian, your role is to tell others so that they are invited in to a right relationship with God. Now, perhaps you might say to me at this point, Jeff, here in America, this is culturally unacceptable. It's just offensive to push your religion on others. I'd have to say you're right. It, it is really difficult, and I feel your struggle. Again, in the country I live in, uh, this not just, is not just culturally unacceptable. It's illegal to do this. But let me point us together back to the word. First, in verse 11, you remember I pointed out that Paul uses this word for persuasion, to to win someone over. Let me encourage you. uh, Let your invitation be winsome. Elsewhere, Paul would say to the Colossian church that their speech to outsiders ought to be seasoned with salt. It ought to be tasteful and fitting. So, so, so let the way that you talk to your neighbors this week be winning and, and not abrasive and condemning, n- not judgmental towards them, not sh- seeking to show your self-rightness. Instead, Christ. So that then if they reject you, they're not rejecting your abrasive delivery, but they are rejecting the message which you are delivering from the king. But if you're like me, then at this point you're still saying to yourself, this is still hard. It's, it's too hard. I'm guessing most of us here in this room this week would feel like going out and openly talking about Christ is really challenging. If I actually went to my neighbors, to my coworkers, if I had people over my house for dinner, if I took the initiative with the people around me to tell them about what Jesus has done for me, that, that would be just too hard. That would be too difficult. And I would have to say to you, you're right. It is too hard for you. But, but thankfully, this text not only points us to the change that Christ brings and the means by which we'll hear, but it points us to the fuel which supplies the delivery. You see, even if you went out from here today wanting to be a better ambassador for Christ and trying on your own strength to better persuade others about Christ, I guarantee you, you would fail very quickly. 
you have no more hope in your own power to faithfully join God in his work of reconciliation than you have to create the reconciliation itself. Your good intentions this week, your own strength are not enough to be a faithful ambassador for Christ. Instead, the only hope that you have, the only chance that you have of faithfully inviting others, of faithfully persuading others, is through the compelling and changing love of Christ, which we have through union in Christ. But don't take my word for it. Look at the text. Look back at verse 14. This is what we read there. Paul writes, For it is the love of Christ that that controls us. For the love of Christ controls us. It is Christ's love which controls us, or as another version would say, compels us or urges us on to persuade others. Far more powerful than guilt this morning, far more powerful than duty this morning, Christ's love in you is what compels you to tell your neighbor about Jesus Christ. Now, I understand the text here to imply that this is not just our love for Christ, but this is Christ's love itself that is compelling us. This is the love of Christ that's compelling us. So how does that work? Why does Christ's love drive me forward to tell others? Well, Paul answers. We read in verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So Christians are united with Christ. As as Christ died, we have died in him. As he has risen to life, we are risen to new life in him, complete with his new motivations. We live not just for ourselves any longer, but we live through him and for him. Through the gospel, our union with Christ allows us to take on a completely new motivation that is not our own. We take on, this verse is saying, we take on the new motivations of the love of Christ. It's not just our weak love improved. No, instead it's, it's his love that we are united with, which is compelling us forward. In dying with him, verse 14 is saying, we, and then in being raised in him, we get his compelling love. His compelling love to save the world becomes our compelling love to proclaim that salvation. So, so, so imagine you have some old 1981 pickup truck, and, and you've been driving it forever, and it's about to die, and finally it just blows out. And it, the engine explodes, it catches on fire, and it's shot, right? Worthless. And worth only to be driven off to a junkyard and sold for 125 bucks, right? But then imagine you have a friend that comes to you and says, I think I can fix your pickup truck. And, and instead of coming in and working hard on, on your burned-out engine, he, he brings in his 2017 Hummer. And, and he picks up the, the huge Hummer engine out of his car, and he drops it in your old pickup truck. 
tunes it up, and you're driving down the road, good as new. Now, at that point, your engine isn't your old engine anymore, is it? (laughs) It's actually his engine, to be honest. It's not just your engine tuned up and trying to work harder, but it's completely replaced. It's a new engine. If you are here today and you are a Christian, when we say that you have union with Christ, we are saying that you have a completely new fuel, a completely new motivation in Christ. His love. It's, it's his heart. His compassion for the lost people around you is now driving you forward. It's not just tuned up and you trying to work harder. It's a completely replaced and renewed driving love, which is compelling you forward. This is what Paul was intending when he said that we are now a new creation in verse 17. The love of Christ keeps you from living for yourself and instead causes you to pour out your love to others. So if you share Christ this week with this type of love, you'll be different. When you're initially intimidated to share with the people around you, you'll find boldness because it's not your own strength which you are relying on any longer. You are relying on Christ's strength in you to speak up about your faith. And when you succeed this week and actually tell someone about what Christ has done for you, you won't let it yourself become prideful and think self-righteously of yourself because you'll realize that you never had that power in you all along. It's Christ in you, and that's the only hope that you had for telling someone else. And this week, when you fail, and you're quiet when you should have spoken up, you will be kept from staggering into despair because you know the power of Christ's forgiving love, not only for the person you should extend it to, but for yourself. And so you will be compelled to get back up and share again. So look to Christ's love this week to compel you to speak to your neighbors. You know, this September, Dr. Kent Bradley spoke before Congress. He, this doctor had been a medical missionary who was effect, infected with the Ebola virus and then was later healed and then campaigned to fight against the Ebola virus. And he talked about the trend in West Africa of people dangerously refusing to believe that Ebola was real. These villages and peoples were believing that Ebola was actually some type of propaganda stunt by the West and that there was no true epidemic of Ebola. And so this is what he said in an interview this September. He said this. He said, it's easy relatively easy to send supplies and equipment and maybe even personnel across the ocean to fight Ebola. But changing people's beliefs or altering their behaviors is a very difficult challenge in any setting. Then he said this, I think that the only people capable of helping those who are still in denial are their neighbors, the people around them, the survivors, the Liberian survivors of Ebola. These Liberian survivors, they essentially need to become witnesses, basically, to try to overcome the stigma and to say that, yes, this is real, and yes, 
you can survive, and here's what you need to do. Church, in much the same way, Paul writes to you this morning, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, be reconciled to God. Let's pray together.